In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, at this point in the season, I hope everyone here this morning knows that we are in the final stretch of Advent, a season of hopeful watching and waiting for the Messiah's birth. Making this all the more confusing, though, is the conflicting messages all around us in society of holiday spirit and cheer that threatens to swallow us whole and promises to spit us right back out again December 26th, weary and worn, and perhaps in no mood at all to continue to try to celebrate for the 12 full days of Christmas. This is not to say that all of this peace on earth and goodwill towards men sentiments or that these um, opportunities for cheerful gift giving are negative things. No, it's just that we as Christians, we don't think we're there yet. And our understanding of what the celebration is about is something probably pretty different than what we are seeing surrounded us that is enchanting, but is an artificially created holiday glow. Let's not forget that we have indeed already heard today the call to celebrate in our opening hymn, Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. But also take note that this joyous refrain is still pointing us to something that's not happened yet. Jesus is coming soon. He's on his way, but he's not here yet. Now in Isaiah this morning, we stepped into an ongoing story of King Ahaz, who we find preparing for a siege that's coming up to his gates. And so he's appropriately checking Israel, um, sorry, he's checking Jerusalem's defenses. He's checking the water supply, but he is afraid. God sends Isaiah and his son Shear Jeshub, which is quite a name, but it basically means a remnant will return. And they are sent to bring Ahaz a message to encourage him. I kind of find this a lovely thought that God is making use of a prophet just to encourage somebody to bolster their faith uh, instead of the usual turn and repent. It's kind of lovely to hear that God could use a prophet just to say, hang in there. And so we get this message. Now, God sends Ahaz this message, but he also tells him that he has to stand firm, which we, that's good advice, sensible advice. And then God, through Isaiah, tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. Now, signs are tricky stuff, especially in scripture. Asking for God to give you one, even more so. So Ahaz he refuses, and initially you kind of think, well, that's probably some good advice, right? You don't put the Lord your God to the test, all that kind of stuff. But perhaps as John Goldingay states in his commentary, there's a difference between people who want to believe but who need help and people who don't want to believe and they want to find a reason to not. So God seems to think that Ahaz is the first type. He wants to believe, but he needs some help. And so he decides that even though Ahaz has not specified what his sign should be, he decides, I'm going to tell you what your sign will be. And it's this. There's going to be a virgin, an unmarried woman, who's going to get married. She's going to conceive, will bear a child, naming him Emmanuel, because God was with them, and the crisis will be over at that time. 
Now, we don't know which woman this is in reference to or any other details here, but from what I've been able to glean from looking at this passage and reading some commentaries and looking into it, we are to understand that this was meant to be a living timeline for Ahaz to give him reassurance that this is a short-term problem, months, not years. And his people will be safe as long as Ahaz is faithful. It's an interesting sign that God provides, and it's kind of, um, if you're watching movies, it's like, a, it's like an Easter egg that God kind of plants way back in the time of Isaiah that Matthew then takes for us and applies in a very fresh and new way. And, and so it's this richness and this beauty and this depth that we get to see, even if Isaiah didn't fully understand the sign as he was presenting it, or Ahaz didn't fully understand what that would mean when he received it. So Ahaz is left to trust in God and to remain steadfast in his faith, waiting for God to save his people once again, watching and waiting for that promised child, Emmanuel, to be born. We hear the next passage today, which was a reading from Romans, and it was Paul's opening, which we heard. Uh, this comes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Ahaz's time, but there's a connection here that I that would love to just point out. Um, Paul opens his letter with an extended greeting, and I say extended, but it's really kind of stretched to the breaking point. Um, he can't seem to help himself but to dive in and share some good news. And you know, he Romans is a massive theological undertaking, so I get that he is setting it up, but this greeting is worth exploring a bit. And verses five through six, which we heard today from Romans 1, Paul is setting up what his understanding of the gospel is. And let me read this to you. This is the New Testament for Everyone translation. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about believing obedience among all the nations for the sake of his name. That includes you, too, who are called by Jesus the King. If I were to put Paul's definition of the gospel in my own words, it would be this. Jesus has poured out his grace upon not just Israel, but the whole world. Forget Caesar. Jesus, my king, is your king too. And he's calling you to be part of his holy people. It's a brilliant and a really bold claim coming from Paul that certainly would have ruffled feathers in Rome at that time bold and dangerous to attack Caesar's claim to divine authority and power. This fantastic snapshot of hope for a new way of living is all about Jesus, the word made flesh, the long expected king of glory. But even now, in this triumphant kingdom of heaven, Paul and all his fellow believers are waiting for the second coming of Jesus, true. They already have Jesus present among them through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and through the interactions within the family of faith, but still they are called to watch and wait for the return of their king. And then we're going to look at Matthew's gospel. We go back a little bit in the story, and we hear Matthew's telling of Jesus' birth for our gospel reading today. And he tells us the story from Joseph's perspective. Now, allow me to confess something to you all, dear souls and visitors. This has long been my least favorite telling of Jesus' birth. 
Um, it doesn't mean there's no value in it. I'm going to briefly get into that. Uh, I, I will hopefully show you that there's value to it. But I confess my own bias in not being all that excited to hear a birth story from Joseph's perspective, um, which, looking at the details he provides, is sparse at best. Here are the details that he gives us and what we heard this morning. Joseph hears his fiancée, Mary, is pregnant. After a dream, he marries Mary. She delivers a child, and he names him Jesus. That's it. Suffice it to say, <laughs> this doesn't satisfy me on its own. But thanks be to God that this is not the only gospel that we have. Um, the account gets told more fully, and it gets you get far more details by reading through all of the Gospels, which I encourage you to do. But for today, I am going to limit my focus on Joseph's account. You see, Joseph is a good man. He's arguably one of the only truly good examples we get in Scripture where there's no glaring sin present, although he doesn't grace the pages of Scripture much. Um, the NTE translation puts it this way, Joseph her husband-to-be was an upright man. He didn't want to make a public example of her, so he decided to set the marriage aside privately. We all, we all know that Mary is telling the truth, right? We know that she's telling the truth about how she became pregnant. You can read it in Luke 1 that this Gabriel, this angel, comes and talks to her about God's plan for her and for the Messiah to enter the world. We know about Mary's extraordinary yes, we know that this is indeed God at work to redeem his people. But at this point, Joseph does not. It is telling that he does not seek to divorce Mary or to publicly seek restitution or to punish her. It is clear that he takes it seriously, but he is not harsh or wrathful or rash in his interactions with Mary. Like I said, he's one of the good ones. While he's trying to figure out what to do with all of this, the Lord appears to him in a dream. And an angel explains to Joseph what really happened. This is not what it looks like at all. But it is, in fact, exactly what they've all been waiting for. This child, who Joseph is told to name Jesus, the name that literally translated means Yahweh is salvation, is the long-awaited-for Messiah coming to his people at last. You can imagine the relief that Joseph must have felt upon waking up, even if he's just been handed a major curveball. Mary has been and remains faithful to the Lord and to Joseph. All is well. The marriage is still on. This is where we get this delightful note that Matthew draws out from Isaiah that we heard this morning, and he applies it here for us to better understand the story and what is going on. All this happened so that what the Lord said through the prophet might be fulfilled. Look, the virgin is pregnant and will have a son, and they shall give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Of course it makes sense to us because we've heard this story before, but for Joseph living this out, it is a good indicator of his own steadfast faith that allows him to take this dream as truth and give his own quiet and understated yes to God's plan and to being Mary's partner. And here's where I'd like to linger a moment and perhaps undo a bit of the harm I did earlier in stating that this is my least favorite account of this story. 
there's a lot of good to be found with Joseph. First, I find it delightful and, and such a fun role reversal for me that in this instance, a young woman, Mary, is the lead role in God's plan to have the word made flesh and to dwell among his people, and that Joseph, a man, is the supporting role. In various spheres of Christendom, you may even refer to Joseph here being Mary's helpmeet, a term which, at least from my experience, is almost only used to describe a woman's support role to her spouse. It is true that Joseph's account of Jesus' birth leaves out many of the details, but the more I sat with this this week, the more I actually appreciated that. Of course, he comes to know the whole story and, and all the details that happened. I'm sure Mary would have shared that with him. But what struck me the most, and what I perhaps have overlooked for so long, too long, is that Joseph doesn't try to tell a story that's not his to tell. Because he refuses to tell the story, because he does not do that, he refuses to take center stage, it's as if he pulls a microphone right up to Mary's mouth and he points to her saying, listen to her, let her share that story with you all. And in so doing, his understated yes is for Joseph to step firmly beside Mary, to be her support in this God-given task to bring Jesus into the world, even though it means he too will have to pay a price. Joseph knows that God is with Mary, and he rightly chooses to be with her too. That is the type of partner that we all want to have, and the type of partner we should all want to be. Now, I'd like to highlight here in, in a different way that in all of these examples of scripture that we've heard today with Ahaz, with Joseph, and with Paul, people are all waiting on the Lord in some capacity. Yet their lives do not give us any sense of inaction. They are waiting. They are not inactive. They seem to exemplify that faithful waiting means faithfully living out their lives in service to the Lord, using the fullest of their abilities. I think that this is something we need to hold on to, because in our culture, we do everything we can to avoid waiting. We want instant gratification for the most mundane of things. Think of the examples of Amazon Prime, drive-up shopping services, delivery for food, delivery for laundry. It goes on and on. We want what we want now, and we don't want to have to work for it, much less wait for it. But God's definition of waiting seems to be different. You see, we can wait for the Lord while we work while we wait in line at the grocery, while we sleep, while we cook, whatever it is that we're doing. And I think that particularly for Paul and for the faithful of his time, and us too, I know why that is. When the Holy Spirit was given to the church at Pentecost, I believe this means that those people all the way through to us today were empowered, comforted, encouraged, taught, and guided from that point on as to how they were to live and how they were to follow God. Things are not as they seem from the world's perspective. We know that because we already know that the kingdom of God is here now. God is already 
at work, making all things new. Jesus sits triumphant at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is kindling the hearts of people from every nation, tongue, tribe, to bend the knee and confess that Jesus is our King. But our kingdom is not of this world, and there is still much work to do in order to help spread this good news. We are not called to sit idly by and wait for the second coming. If you'll allow me a brief personal example here, I think it can help illustrate this type of waiting that I'm talking about. Eight years ago today, I was down the road at CDH waiting and actively working to bring my oldest son into the world. It's about 10.30 now, which means I would have been right in the thick of it. Labor and delivery of a child is no small thing. Anyone who has delivered a child will tell you that. It doesn't matter that this process is as old as time and humanity itself. It doesn't matter that it's a natural thing. It doesn't matter that countless others have gone through it. It doesn't matter whatever you've done to prepare yourself. You will find yourself in the most daunting and demanding of physical challenges in your life as you work to bring your child into the world. And there is no shortcut. It will be work, and there will be a cost. I remember that labor seemed to go from moments of rest into increasingly longer periods of intense and unbearable effort that required incredible endurance to shorter periods of relative rest where I work to catch my breath, rest my muscles, and pray for strength before the next wave of contractions hit and I was required to be at work again. Was I waiting in those brief moments? Yeah, certainly. But that waiting was by no means inactive. Even as I worked to catch my breath, my body was working to bring forth a life I can tell you that I knew in a deeply physical way how grateful I was to be where I was and delivering a child in the relative safety that I was in. But I was also palpably aware that there are countless people who died in this process throughout history. The stakes were high. This was no illusion of pain, no illusion of work. The stakes were the highest it's been. And it was a cost I was ready to pay if I needed to. This was holy, righteous work. But it's this type of waiting that I want to highlight to you all. This is the type of waiting that we are called to do on this side of the cross while we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. We are not inactive while we wait. So we work to train ourselves how to actively wait and to anticipate his coming once again into the world that he has made and coming into our lives afresh in this new church here. It is hard and difficult spiritual work at times that requires us to back it up with our lives being lived out for another and to actively retune our hearts and our minds to something beyond what we can see and we can hear and we can experience by the world standards. It doesn't make sense to live for someone else by the world's standards. It doesn't. 
Nothing is more important than your own life by our world's account. And yet I'm telling you that that is not the fullest picture of reality we are given. There is something yet more real and more precious and of more value than living your life for yourself. And that is the reality that we have to tune our hearts and our minds and all of our strength into. And that is how we wait. So in Advent, we await the birth of our King and the miracle of the Incarnation. Hope made flesh. Hope made real to be lived out among you and among me and for you and for me and for the church. And I encourage us all to spend these last few days in Advent thinking about what it means to faithfully wait for the Lord while we live in the knowledge that we are already living with Emmanuel already among us. And where do we see Emmanuel among us? It's the people next to us in the pew. It's the people in our world. It's the people at the grocery. It's the people in line at Target that you're annoyed with because they aren't unloading their cart fast enough. That is where we see God with us. And the Holy Spirit will show you who his people are. We're here already. God is with us and among us. I pray that we will find the courage, no matter what our story is, that when we get a picture of what we're being called to do, that we will have the strength and the courage and the conviction to be able to offer our own yeses the way that Mary did and Joseph did and countless others have done. And I pray that when we know the celebration of Christ is coming, when we get to gather to celebrate the coming of Christ and the incarnation, that we will celebrate not just Jesus' birth, but that we will celebrate new life and rebirth once more into our own faith. Emmanuel is coming, and yet he is already here. Take heart. The waiting's almost done. Amen.